Hey friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, James Jordan continues the discussion that he began two episodes ago, back on episode 228, on Jacob's dream and it being a new Tower of Babel scene. Here, after reading the text of Genesis 28, 10 through 22, he's going to elaborate on what the stones in the story represent. He's also going to give a little bit of a theology about the shape of the cross and much more. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by listening in on this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan continuing his discussion of Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, 10 to 22. Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran and encountered a certain place. And he had to spend the night there, for the sun had come in. And he took one of the stones of the place, and set it at his head, and he lay down in that place. And he dreamt. And behold, the ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reaching the heavens. And behold, messengers of God were going up and down on it. And behold, Yahweh was standing above it. And he said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I give to you and to your seed. And your seed will be like the dust of the earth. And you will burst forth to the sea, to the east, to the north, to the Negev. And all the clans of the soil, all the nations of the earth, will find their blessing through you and through your seed. Behold, I am with you, and I will guard you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this soil. Indeed, I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Why, Yahweh is in this place, and I, even I, didn't realize it. And he was awestruck and said, How awe-inspiring is this place! This is none other than a house of God, and that is the gate of heaven, or this is the gate of heaven. Jacob started early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had set at his head, and he set it up as a standing pillar, and he poured oil on top of it, And he called the name of the place Bethel, house of the mighty one. However, Luz was the name of the city in former times. Jacob vowed a vow, saying, If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this way that I go, and will give me food to eat and a garment to wear, and if I come back in peace to my father's house, Yahweh shall be God to me. And this stone that I have set up as a standing pillar shall become a house of God. And everything that you give me I shall tithe, tithe it to you. Or tithing, I will tithe it to you. A doubling of the verb for emphasis on oath that he swears there. We covered this last week, but just to remind ourselves that there is a chiastic dimension to this entire narrative that's, well, to at least through verse 19, up until the oath that he swears, just in certain key words that are used. And at midnight, there is this covenant promise. And there's also parallel of phrasing we looked at last time that the things that happen in the first part of the narrative where he goes to bed and God speaks to him, the same elements occur in the same order in this last half of the narrative where he wakes up and he does something with a stone and then he swears an oath to God in response to God's oath to him, which runs through the same material in the same order. So that much for a review. And then we were looking at the text. 
And verse 10, Jacob departs from Beersheba, seven wells, or well of an oath, can mean either one, and went toward Haran. And we compared that to Ishmael's departure from Abraham. Ishmael went out, but God went with him. Jacob knows this, part of the family heritage of information. So he has reason to believe that God will go with him just as he went with Ishmael. And the angel appeared to Ishmael and to Hagar as they left. And here the angel of Yahweh appears to him. They've left the same location and going into the same kind of place. And then it says he went toward Haran. And we compared that to Abraham's leaving Ur. He left Ur and he came to Haran. He stayed there and then he went on to the promised land. Jacob is moving from the promised land to Haran back to Mesopotamia where Abraham started from and then he'll come back the same way. Haran is the wilderness. It's like leaving Egypt, spending time in the wilderness, getting to the promised land. When Abraham left Ur, he went to Haran. He stayed there until the older generation had died off. Then he went into the promised land. They left Egypt, went in the wilderness. They had to stay there until the older generation died off. They went to the promised land. So certain kinds of things happen in the wilderness. And let me just camp there for just a second. This is an important aspect of biblical theology, and it'll just kind of contextualize what happens in this story here. I'm not going to ignore that map that I've already put up. You come out from Egypt into the wilderness, and then you go to the promised land. What happens out here? Well, you come to Mount Sinai, and the covenant's renewed, and the space around Mount Sinai is wilderness space. Wilderness is the in-between space. You leave the old world, you come into this place, and then you go out of it into the new world. Now, that's what happens in worship. We have left Niceville, Florida, to come in here. And after it's over, we'll go back. When we came in here, we come in with all the garbage and oppression and sins and idolatry of the previous week. We're going to confess all those and get rid of them here, in this wilderness here. And then we'll be made new and we'll go back out into the promised land. So right now, Niceville, Florida, is Egypt, because we've left it to come in here. And after this service is over, when we go back out, Niceville is a promised land. Do you understand that? That is what is happening. And where we are right now, when the worship service actually begins until it's over, we're in this in-between place, or wilderness place, where God meets with us. And what's the wilderness like? Well, in the wilderness, you've set everything aside. All The old culture has been set aside. All the rich food has been set aside. You just have bread and water. That's what we got here. Bread and water. Except Jesus turns water into wine, but in the wilderness, that's what you have. Manna and water. Because everything is simplified in the wilderness so that you don't have anything to distract you from dealing with God and getting fixed back up. And then you go back out into the land that flows with milk and honey and olive yards and vineyards and all the other nice cultural stuff like cities and the like. So the wilderness is a simplified space where you can deal with God without distractions. I mean, this is all real common to us, set aside all your distractions, come to church, you know, but I'm trying to give it a biblical theological cast and show you how it's set out. Well, now, what happens when you get in the promised land is 
you can't go all the way back down to Sinai. So you need a little portable piece of wilderness to take with you. What is that portable piece of wilderness that they take with them? The tabernacle and the courtyard around the tabernacle. So when they get into the promised land, you've got the tabernacle, you've got Mount Sinai in the middle of it, which is the tabernacle itself. You've got the altar, which was at the base of the tabernacle, and you've got this courtyard around it. And every time you sin, you go in here into this wilderness space and come back out. And then the nation as a whole does it at Passover and the Day of Atonement. All the rituals take place in here because you're always going back into the desert to get it fixed and come back out. In big ways, God has to do this. Like when he takes them into the Babylonian exile, simplify their lives. Daniel's there. He doesn't eat anything but seeds, it says. In the first chapter. Seeds meaning wheat and grain. It's all listed in Ezekiel where it... Ezekiel is told to make bread out of lentils and beans and, and millet and barley and wheat. That's what Daniel eats. They're both there in Babylonian exile. To start with, they had to simplify life. All right, when you go into this wilderness place that's in between, you've left the old behind, you haven't yet moved into the new. This is called a boundary or liminal space in religious studies. Liminal meaning it's kind of limited on either side you can think of it that way it's got a boundary around it that says you come into this special place special simplified place to deal with God get charged back up receive the spirit anew come back out now what's happened to Jacob here he's gone to just such a place and what happens well God encounters him in that place in the in-between place when he comes back into the promised land, the same thing happens. He gets over here to the boundary of the promised land. He's left Mesopotamia behind. Esau's over here. And in that in-between place, God appears to him and wrestles with him. So, God tends to meet us in the in-between places when we've left one thing behind to prepare us for another. And there's lots of applications for that. It applies every Sunday it applies when you set things aside in your house and pray for a while. It applies in big ways in cultures and societies. If God brings a nation under judgment and simplifies their lives, maybe that's an opportunity for the nation to renew covenant and start to grow again in a better way. There's just lots of ways that applies, but it's geographically pictured in this wilderness space, the in-between place. The simplified place. So that's a large picture of what's happening here. And that's why you keep finding these encounters in the wilderness. It's not that God is a desert God. It's just what the liberals look at the Bible and say, well, Yahweh, he was a desert God. Just listen to that word, Yahweh. It sounds like wind. Well, it does sound like wind because it's the Spirit. <laughs> but it's not that God is a desert God. It's that God encounters people in the in-between space. When he builds a temple in Jerusalem, that temple is the wilderness space. It's right inside the city. That's an interesting thing, that you have the city, which is the climax of the culture, and right in the heart of the culture is a wilderness space, so that the two are brought very close together. In the New Jerusalem, they're completely combined, the wilderness space and the cultural space. 
But right now they're very dramatically separate. We move toward the coalescence of culture and cult. Let me say that again. Eventually there is the coalescence of culture and cult. Where worship and culture are so close together that they're almost indistinguishable. There's always two things because you're either talking to God or talking to other people or working with animals. But still they're brought closer and closer together. But to start with, to teach us, they're kept very dramatically separate. And these boundaries here, I mean, you cross into this boundary and you're not clean, they kill you. So there's very dramatic boundaries between the cultural space and the wilderness space where covenant renewal takes place. And that's to teach us something. So that's where we are. We're out in this wilderness space here where God is going to take away the old and bring about the new. Well, he's left the old behind. Actually, the emphasis is on promises of the new. Well, this happens at night, verse 11. Gee, we spent a lot of time on verse 10. Verse 11, he encountered a certain place. He spent the night there because the sun had set. The Hebrew idiom is the sun had come in. The sun had gone home. He took one of the stones of the place and set it at his head and lay down in that place. I pointed out last time that we always think the way we would sleep, we put a stone under our head and bundle up some cloth and sleep under it. But from what we know of the ancient world, and of course, I'm no expert on this. I'm just going by what I've read. People usually didn't sleep that way back in them days. So putting this stone at his head may have been to keep the wind off of him or any number of things. Some people have said there was a bunch of stones and he arranged them around his head, but really, since it says he took the stone that was at his head and set it up as a pillar, all we know for sure is there's one stone. But this stone is associated with his head, and that's the important thing, is to see that stone equals head. So here's head, and here's stone. The head represents the person, the stone represents the head. The stone represents the person. That will be significant for what happens next. By putting it there, there's an association created. Now, if nothing else happened, we'd say, big deal. You'd say, there's no association here. He just happened to put a stone near his head or under his head. But what we see happens next is this oil is put on the stone. Well, what does that mean? Well, the angels ascending and descending on the ladder were coming down on Jacob. So oil on the stone means God's Spirit coming down on Jacob, which means the stone represents Jacob. And that stone represents Jacob because it was next to his head. That creates the symbolism. And we are in this city of Luz. Luz is nearby. Evidently, Jacob didn't feel like he should go to Luz. Later on in Judges chapter 1, Luz is conquered and it officially is renamed Bethel. And it says one of the men went off, built another place and called it Luz. In other words, we're still not in the New Covenant. There's still a place for the pagans to run to. Now there isn't. There's no place for them to hide. We're going to take it all. Everything's going to become Bethel. And there's not going to be any Luz left to go to except hell. But we're still in the middle of history when we get to the book of Judges and you can take Luz and make it into Bethel and the Luzites can go down the street and make another Luz. We're not there yet. We're here at this place called Bethel. Back in Genesis 12 and 13, this place is already called Bethel by anticipation. If we go back to Genesis 12 verse 8, 
probably, when Abraham wrote this, or Isaac wrote it, he probably said, he moved off from there to the mountain country east of Luz and spread his tent Luz toward the sea and Ai toward the east. Then later on, this was not corrected, but improved so that we understand something to say, Abraham moved east of Bethel and spread his tent Bethel toward the sea. Because later on, Jacob renamed this place Bethel. That way we know that this is already a house of God, even though it hasn't been named that. Well, Abraham was there. Abraham has already built an altar and called on Yahweh there. And in Genesis 13, it was significant that Abraham called on Yahweh there when he got back up out of Egypt because what Yahweh says to Abraham in Genesis 13 is pretty much exactly what he says to Jacob right here. What he says to Abraham at Bethel is what he says to Jacob at Bethel. Then in verse 12 and 13 we have the dream. He sees the ladder set up on the earth and its top reaching the heavens. Messengers going up and down. Angels, of course, the way we usually translate that. Yahweh is standing over against him is the way this translation reads. He's standing over against Jacob to talk to him, standing next to the ladder. But I look at the Hebrew and I look at the commentators and they almost all, well, they all say that it's more accurate to say Yahweh was standing at the top of the ladder. So the ladder reaches up to God, what we've always thought. And here the guy's being a bit more creative than he might have been in this translation. And then he starts to make the promise to him. Well, again, we want to compare Genesis 15, where in a dream of the night, God appears to Abraham and makes a covenant with him. We saw the word ladder doesn't necessarily mean what we think of as a ladder. It can. Of course, there were ladders in the ancient world. If you wanted to climb up a wall, you needed a ladder. Ladders are not something difficult to invent any more than the wheel is. Now they say many cultures in the ancient world didn't have the wheel. Well, they all had wheels, but they had them on little toys. It never occurred to them to make big wheels and use them for anything. It's very strange. You know, the Aztecs and the Incas built all their pyramids without using any wheels. But we find that they had little toys that had wheels on them. Why did I mention that? They had ladders back then, but this word can also mean a mound or a pyramid. It's not used for pyramid, but anything raised up. And considering that this is a Tower of Babel-like scene, it's probably more likely that this is more like a holy mountain or a stepped pyramid that he saw than what we think of as a fireman's ladder. Well... This is back to the Nimrod theme. Remember we've seen Nimrod was a Gibor, a mighty man. Now Jacob had been called a Gibor, a mighty man. And now he comes out and he is in a sense the true Nimrod building a tower to heaven. Or actually God is. God built this tower and God set it up. Jacob just receives it. But he ministers at it. And he's associated with it in the way Nimrod was associated with the false tower that he himself built. And then he's told that the angel would be with him. And that's clear enough from the passage. And that relates back to Ishmael. Again, in stuff we've seen already. Now we can look at the promise and move into new material. The promise, 13b to 15. 
I am Yahweh, God of Abraham, your father, and God of Isaac. Remember, Jacob has replaced Isaac, so Abraham is now his father. It doesn't say God of Abraham and God of Isaac, your father. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your seed. Your seed will be like the dust of the earth. You will burst forth to the seed of the east of the north and to the Negev. All the clans of the earth, of the soil, of the ground will find blessing through you and through your seed. Behold, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go, bring you back to this soil. Indeed, I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Okay, if we look back at 13, you don't have to, I will. Chapter 13, 14 to 16. This is what God said to Abraham at Bethel. Yahweh said to Abram, after Lot had departed from him, Pray, lift up your eyes and see from the place where you are, to the north, to the Negev, to the east, and to the sea. Indeed, all the land that you see I will give to you, and to your seed for the ages. And I will make your seed like the dust of the ground. But if a man were able to measure the dust of the ground, so too could your seed be measured. Up. Walk through the land at its length and its breadth, for I give it to you. So, Three elements are here, north, Negev, east, and sea. The land to your seed, and the seed is like the dust. Now, what is this north, south, east, west? Negev is in Palestine, this area here, south of the Dead Sea. Generally, it means south. And, of course, the sea is the Mediterranean Sea. So we've got north, east, West, which is the Mediterranean Sea, and Negev, which is the south. Well, if you have a Bible with maps in the back, look at it sometime. Find Bethel. You'll find that if you look at oh, the tribes of Israel, not in the Solomonic day when the kingdom was expanded, but sort of in the basic time after the conquest, Bethel really is pretty much right at the center. You can just take your finger and measure from Bethel to where the northern boundary is drawn and to where the southern boundary is drawn and it's pretty much in the middle and the same is true east and west it's almost exactly in the middle of the land and so spreading out from there is entirely appropriate it's significant more ways than we might think again this is one of your basic cross shapes in the Bible this cross shape occurs over and over again in the Bible as a picture of the expansion of the kingdom of God in all four directions. Now specifics. I listed nine specifics here just looking at the text. It seemed to have that many particular statements in it. Might be able to list them differently. I am Yahweh. First thing Yahweh says. Well, we know that that means the covenant keeping God. And it's important at this point because God is not making a new promise as El Shaddai, but he is reaffirming an earlier promise that he made. God comes to Abram and makes that promise. Actually, Yahweh speaks to him there as well. And now it's even more pregnant to use this word Yahweh because he is reaffirming. But the covenant God who is with his people and who keeps the promises is the name there. Abram, your father, we've commented on that already. Jacob is Isaac's replacement, so now Abraham is his father in a way that Isaac is not. You know the word father can mean grandfather and so forth by extension. But when it says Abram, your father, and Isaac, there's a contrast implied. 
Then it says, the land on which you lie will give to you and to your seed. I've got land not given to him but to his seed, but that's obviously wrong. I don't know how, what I was thinking of. But it's given to him and to his seed, so he will come back and possess this. That's a promise. He will come back to this place, and he does. I forget how far off it is, but it's in chapter 35. Arise, let us go to Bethel. And we come back there and build an altar way off in the future from this point in time. He says, your seed will be like the dust of the earth. Man is made of dust. So his seed will be like new atoms, new founders of new world. He says, look north, south, east, and west. Bethel is in some sense the center of the land. Conceptually as well as quite literally and geographically, it is in the center of the land. All humanity is to be blessed through Jacob and his seed. All the plants of the soil will find blessing through you. Now we've heard that promise made before, but in this context, with this Tower of Babel right here and Jacob being a Nimrod, we can see that this is reversing the Tower of Babel idea. Through Nimrod and the tower builders at Babel, all of humanity was judged and scattered. Now through Jacob and this true tower, all humanity will be blessed. So this phrase, I will bless everybody through you, which God said to Abraham and has been said before, now takes on a new color in that we're in this Babel situation and it's reversing the Tower of Babel. Just as all humanity was judged and scattered through the original Nimrod, now through this new Nimrod, all humanity will be blessed and gathered. Seventhly, God says, Emmanuel, I am with you. I will guard you wherever you go. This is a universal God, not the God who just lives in one place, unlike all the other gods. These people need to be reminded of this. I think people always need to be anyway. I mean, we don't experience this quite so much because we're so used to the idea that God is God everywhere. But I think that if you went as a cultural attaché or something like that to a Muslim land or to China or someplace like that, you would feel psychologically that you weren't at home and you were in a strange place. And it would be a little bit more difficult to feel comfortable there. They say people who grow up in the United States and like most of us, we see the flag. The flag doesn't mean anything to me. It's everywhere. I mean, it's just like air. You don't think about air that you breathe. You don't think about water that you drink unless somebody gives you a bad glass of it. Water is water. Of course, around here you never know. But you don't think much about the flag because it's everywhere. But people who are that way, and people will say, I was in the Middle East, and I was over there for months, and one day I saw an American flag, and I'd never really thought about it before, and then I thought, oh man, who's over there? And I went over there and met the guy. Because all of a sudden, they felt just how lonely they'd been. Well, it's somewhat that way, no matter, I mean, psychologically, that's the way we are. So... If you had interviewed Jacob, he might have said, Oh yes, I know that Yahweh is everywhere, but he didn't really feel it. And so God gives him a special assurance of it and says, Yeah, I really am going to go with you, and you aren't going to feel it every day. But I will be there. And he says, I'm going to guard you, just as Adam was supposed to guard the garden. Now God is going to guard him in the place he goes to. So there's that theme. And then he says, I will not leave you till I've done what I've spoken to you. 
Now, <laughs> what does that mean? Does that mean he's going to leave him once he brings him back to Bethel? Well, we know that's not going to be true. Actually, what he says is going to happen is all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through his seed. So God says, I'm not going to leave you until I've done all of that. Well, when is all that done? Well, in a sense, it's not done until the end of history. It's not done yet. In another sense, it's done when Jesus finishes his work. And 40 years after that, Jerusalem is destroyed and Israel is removed from history as the particular vehicle of the kingdom of God. So you might say, well, God does leave Jacob in the sense that once you get down to the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jacob's descendants are supposed to move into the church and those who don't are destroyed or punished, kicked out. God does leave them at that point because it has all been done. Everything that's said here has been done. We have reached the point where everybody in the earth is going to be blessed through the seed because the seed has come in the fullest sense. Well, when you look at it that way, you can see it's a large, far future thing. But as I say, you can extend it further and say, well, but the gospel hasn't been applied everywhere. Israel, in a larger sense, is the church. The point is, God is never going to leave it. It's not a statement, hey, I'm going to keep this up, but eventually I'm going to leave you. It's really more, I'm never going to leave you. Because what I've said I'm going to do is going to take the entire rest of the history of the world. Well, Jacob wakes up and says, Behold, Yahweh's in this place, and I didn't realize it. So, there's something new that he realizes, and Jacob really wasn't completely confident that Yahweh was everywhere. I'm out here in the wilderness. God must not be here, but sure enough, he is. So Jacob's confidence in the universality of God, of Yahweh, as the universal God, is reassured. And then there's confession. He was fearful and said, how fearful is this place? Fear is our response to an encounter with God. God shows up in the Bible, people are always afraid. And it's not just because we're sinners, it's because there's a happy kind of fear that's just amazement. But because we're sinners, there's always a mixture of just plain terror as well, and fright. And he is frightened, but also reassured. They're both mixed together, and the fear of God in the Bible is a mixture of those two things for us. When God shows up, people are afraid. And people know when God shows up, they do. If a tornado went through this town and killed half a dozen people, people would know that it was God who did it. And the proof of that would be, they would say, why has God done this to me? Now, they may not bow the knee to him. They may be angry. They may just blame him. Why did God do this to me? Why did he tear up my house? Why did he kill my husband? Why did he hurt my child in the hospital with this tornado? They know. When things happen that are dramatic like that, people know that God is in it. It's not a big, hard secret that God is around. God speaks through overwhelming events. Anything that overwhelms a human being is a manifestation of God. So if you're just absolutely overwhelmed with sickness or with enthusiasm or whatever, 
those things people call gods because they are being overwhelmed by them. He says, well, fear is man's response to an encounter with God. Then he says, this is the house of God. The tabernacle is the house of God later on, and we should compare this in the sense that in the tabernacle, you'll remember, I'm sure, that the altars in the tabernacle form a ladder that reaches up to heaven with the ark here and these three zones here, the incense altar. This is an upward thing. And when the sacrifices are done, blood is always splashed on the side of the altar where it can fall down or it's put on the horns and poured out at the base or it's put on these horns here and poured out at this base way down here or it's taken in and put in front of the Ark of the Covenant and then it's put on the horns of the incense altar and poured out at the base of the burnt offering. Blood always moves down. And blood opens a door downward It opens up these doors so that God can communicate with man. Once the blood has been done in the sacrifice, after the blood, then the sacrifice is made and the smoke ascends up. You always do the blood first. You kill the animal, you take blood, you open these doors downward from God to man, then you build up the fire, put the animal on the fire, and the smoke goes up. It descends and ascends. Communication between God and man. God opens it from above. Man sends the smoke back up to God. Angels here are going up and down on it, but God himself starts the thing by revealing it. So God makes the movement down, and then this up and down communication starts. And that's what happens in the tabernacle. Of course, that's what happens in our worship. God forgives us at the beginning of the service, and then we worship Him. He extends down to us. So, to say it's the house of God means it's the place where people communicate with God. And then it's called the gate of heaven. This is the Hebrew equivalent to Babel, gate of God. And these I've got down here to compare the extended gateways into Ezekiel's temple and the series of doorways that lead toward the Holy of Holies. These are gates that get to heaven. Heaven is the Holy of Holies. You've got a door here. You've got another door here out of the holy place. You've got another door leading into the temple itself. In Ezekiel's temple, this is a very thick wall. You may remember this. We looked at it in Revelation. And the doorways and the gates are extended places that you have to walk through. They're not just simple doors that swing open and you pass through in an instant, like in an airport, the instant you go through, you know, because the beeper goes off. Now, these are extended doorways that actually have guard rooms to the side where people can shoot you and kill you if you shouldn't be going through there. If this is heaven, then the entire house of God complex is the gate of heaven. All of this is a gate, gateway into heaven, a place where you meet with God. Another way to understand that is at Mount Sinai, God is here. This is the house of God. Down at the bottom is the altar. The altar is the gateway to heaven. And so if you set up a stone or a pillar or an altar, that is something that's at the gateway. We'll see that in just a second.
verse 18. Jacob started early in the morning. This is sunrise. It's a new day. Compare this to coming out of Egypt. Well, not really. Starting new after God has made a new covenant with you and started you out again. He puts oil on the stone. I've mentioned that that means oil on Jacob. God's presence with or upon Jacob. He puts up this pillar. I do want to do one other thing with that, though, that's not in your notes. If this is a gate of heaven, you have an altar. The gate, you also have pillars. In the temple, you have these two pillars, Yachin and Boaz, which represent king and priest. Which is a kingly pillar, Yachin or Boaz? Boaz, of course. Boaz is the family name of the king's pillar. Yachin is the priest's pillar. These two pillars are doorways. Similarly, in Exodus 24, at the foot of the mountain, which is the gate leading into it, when Moses makes the covenant at Sinai, he built an altar below the mountain and twelve standing stones for the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he takes this offering and he puts blood on the altar and he puts blood on the stones and therefore he makes the covenant here. But these stones with blood on them are part of the doorway. The stone is at the doorway. And probably stones at doorways leading into a house of God, I mean, if we wanted to pursue that and do a whole study on it, we'd wind up talking about the stone in front of Jesus' tomb, which is the gateway into his death, which is our life. So there's a lot one could do with this, but I can only allude to it here. A stone with oil on it, oil coming on Jacob, like the oil coming on the high priest, which is like the dew coming on the mountains. It's God's stuff coming down on him, and he sets it up as a memorial, and he says that when I come back, I will expand this stone into a whole worship site, which he does. In chapter 35, when he comes back, he builds an altar there. So the one stone is now multiplied out to become a number of stones to be an altar. Later on, the tabernacle is there. Verse 19, he makes a name. Jacob renames the place by faith in the future. He called the name of the place Bethel. However, lies with the name of the city in former times. You have to think that Jacob is standing there on this mountain or hill. There's his city. Well, the city is probably on the hill. He's out in the countryside, and he looks over and says, No longer will you be called Luz, you are Bethel. It's 400 years later that the town's name has changed to Bethel. But he changes it right now by faith. He claims it. That's the way we have to think. We have to think, Niceville will someday be the city of God. And we claim it. It may be 400 years from now, but it someday will be. Then we have the vow, verses 20 to 22. Jacob vowed a vow. It's his covenant pledge back to God. If God will be with me and will watch over me on the way I go and give me food and a garment, and I will come back to my father's house, then he will be my God. And the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be a house of God. And everything you give me, I will tithe, tithe it to you. The first thing we need to understand is this is not a set of conditions on God. You can't get one thing or another out of the grammar. Hebrew isn't written that way, but you can get it from the context and from sense. He's not putting much of conditions on God. He's just saying, if I'm still alive, I'll do this. Because he asked for food and garments, 
and coming back. If he'd said, God, if you give me a million dollars, I'll give you a tithe, that would be a bargain. But if he says, if I'm still alive when I get back to this place, then I'll do these things. That's not a set of conditions. That's just a statement of fact. It's a promise. If I don't starve to death, if I don't freeze to death, and if I make it back here, I'll do these things. And so, I don't think we want to read this as any type of bargain with God. That's not the way it's written. Yahweh will be my God. Again, that's not a contract with God that implies a possible rejection of him, but a promise that if Jacob returns, he will establish Yahweh's worship. He's not saying Yahweh will be my God if he does all these things. This is explained by the next sentence. Look at verse 21. And I will come back in peace to my father's house. These verse divisions here aren't helpful because the next phrase belongs with the next verse. Yahweh will be a God to me. That is to say, this stone that I've set up as a standing pillar will become a house of God. See, the word and can mean to wit, or that is. And whether it means it here or implies it, it's the same thing. These ideas are parallel. Yahweh will be my God no matter what, in a general way. But in a specific way, if I get back here, Yahweh will be my God in the sense that I will set up this stone and it will become a worship site, which he does. Take the stone set up and turn it into an altar. And then he says, and this I think is another statement, and everything that you give me I will tithe, tithe it to you. Now who does he tithe it to? It's always a question. We discussed it a tad last week and if there's any quick answer to it. Abraham gave his tithe to Melchizedek, who was God's priest in the land. Does Melchizedek have a successor? Is the city of Jerusalem or Salem still the capital of the land in a religious sense? There's still godly Gentiles there that Isaac was paying a tithe to? Don't know. Or does the tithe mean that I will just take a tithe of the animals and offer them as sacrifices? Probably the most likely explanation. So I've got evidently to someone in the land to be paid upon return to the land. I'm not sure about that. Probably should take that out of these notes. And I'm not sure whether the tithing is to be read as a condition on coming back or as a general condition. You could read it either way. If God will be with me and take care of me, then I will set up this house of God and I will tithe. In other words, the tithing promise may not have anything to do with coming back to the land. He may be saying, I'm going to tithe right along. Or he may be saying that when I get back, everything that I bring with me, I'll tithe. Maybe what he gives to Esau is part of that tithe, since God is saying, give it over to him. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.